Well, it's all been kind of a soft opening up to this point because we now know that 2020 is over because Jake is back at church. Hey, Jake. Um, if, you, if you can't, you know, you, you obviously can't see online, but you'll, you'll hear at some point and you'll be happy. Um, so um, this last week, uh, Ellie woke up and went downstairs to find one of our kids had woken up early and um, what she could make out from what, basically what she found was there was like sand all over our couch uh, and a box of matches had been lit, like all of them, each one individually had been lit, like a pile of matches. They got shoved back in the box, you know. And um, so she went to this child and said, what is going on? What happened? And they said, this child said, I'm not going to reveal which one. Uh, this child said, um, I wanted some sugar this morning, and so I was trying to light sand um, on fire to turn it into sugar. And um, so, you know, you know and I... I mean, how cool would it have been if it had, like, worked, you know? But um, it did not. And, um, and then later on in the week, the same kid actually just discovered where the sugar was, and that's been a problem all week. So, um, but it was funny because there are these things that, you know, they'll happen, and I'll go, oh, man, I forgot about this thing, you know, with, like, kids do this thing. I did this thing. And, uh, and then I think back, and I go, when was this kind of an issue for me? And I remember I was... I was seven years old, and uh, I had found a box of matches, and so I went out in the backyard, and I, I lit all of them. That was it. I just went out to like a planter in our backyard. I have this vivid memory of exactly where it was, and I just lit them, and then I lit one, tried to like burn a leaf, didn't work, lit one, tried to burn a rock, didn't work, you know, had a grand finale with the rest, and, uh, and my dad found them. And he found them, and so what he did was the next week, one night after school, you know, we went and had dinner somewhere, and then my parents took my sister and I to the fire station. And I was like, what are we doing here? And they said, well, uh, we're here to talk to some firemen about you playing with matches. And I was like, Oh, my goodness. Now, as a kid, firemen and fire departments are fun and awesome and exciting and great. Not this time. This guy came out, and all of a sudden, I've never seen a firefighter seem more like law enforcement to, to me. Because, you know, that, that uniform is a friendly uniform. You know, the firefighter uniform to like a kid, you know, the other one's a little bit intimidating still, even though really super cool. And all of a sudden I realized like it's their job to make sure people don't do what I've been doing, what's going to happen. And so these two firefighters came out and they, they invited us in and they brought us into like the, the, the room where like all the beds are all lined up and stuff and they had a TV and table and some chairs and they, it was my parents and my sister and I and these two firefighters and they proceeded to for like an hour give my sister and I, like, the scared straight talk, basically, firefighter style. And, uh, and I was scared straight um, at that point, um, and it, was the, it wasn't the, um, the, even the video, um, actually a really cool video, now, now when I think about it, um, of how a fire starts in this house where they just, like, drop some oily 
rags in a trash can with like a, you know, cigarette that's lit, you know, because everybody's always doing that. And it leads from that little trash can fire to burning the whole house down, and you get to watch the whole thing happen, like in the video. So that was actually kind of cool. It was, it, it, was, it was the photo album of uh, burn victims. That, that was what got me. And um, when we left, uh, they had done a very good job of communicating to my sister and I, but I think mostly me, um, that most of the stuff my parents did was for, for me, for my benefit. Um, and uh, they communicated very well this truth that, 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 that you have to learn at some point, which is the dangers that are involved in playing with fire. Uh, and this, this, this phrase, playing with fire, is one that we use often when we're talking about things that, uh, that maybe we like and we are drawn to, and yet we have to be reminded that these things are potentially dangerous. In fact, I heard that phrase a lot my first year of seminary in a hermeneutics class, which is a fancy term for Bible interpretation, when our professor who was leading this class had written a book on this, uh, this on Bible interpretation, and he, his, the title of his book and the name of the class was Playing with Fire. And he told us, these first-year pastors, that our study of God's Word, our handling of God's Word, was akin to handling something as volatile as fire, because fire, as we know, is valuable and necessary in order for us to have life and civilization um, and to do all these things that we do together collectively as a community of people living in an industrial society. Fire is something that we need, and any kid can tell you fire is pretty cool as well. And yet, it can also be very dangerous when not treated carefully, when not placed in the right hands. God's word is like that. And handling God's word is like handling fire. In the wrong hands, it can cause great destruction, great pain, and great suffering. It is for this reason that God ceases to speak to his people. It is for this reason that God, uh, we read here in 1 Samuel, has, we've entered into a period for God's people of silence from God. We read about this silence um, in, uh, you know, this is our first verse. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At the time, uh, the, there, there was a prophet, and the idea was that God would speak to the prophet. He would speak to the, this person, and, and then that vision, those words that he gave them, they would communicate to the people. And the way that they knew that those words were from God was they were prophetic in the sense that they, uh, they often spoke to things that would eventually be proven to come true. And, 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 and the phrase that, that is referred to at the end of this passage in talking about Samuel, uh, when it's talking about how faithful and good he is, is that he doesn't let, the Lord doesn't let a single one of his words fall to the ground. And to fall to the ground, the word of a prophet, that would mean that they've spoken a word and it didn't come to pass. And this is what ultimately had happened, was God's people, God's leaders, uh, were speaking and trying to speak on behalf of God, and yet it was clear to the people this was not coming from God. These words were falling to the ground, and these things were not coming to pass. Now, we know this is something that God did intentionally, and we read about it in Amos 
chapter 8, where we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst of, of, for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. This, Amos tells us, is what it will be like when there is an absence of God's word. And this is exactly what it is like. And when we hear about something like this, there are two things that we have to ask ourselves. First is, uh, what would that be like, right? To have an absence of the Lord speaking in to the, the, the time in which you're living. But then the second question that probably a, maybe a more self-aware person might be willing to ask themselves is, well, do I see God's word as something that if it were gone, that I would miss? In what way would that actually affect my life? Would, it, would I feel like, uh, like there is a thirst for water, like there is a hunger for food that cannot come and that is not there? Or would it just be, you know, something I'd get used to and probably not all that different from the life in which I lead now. The reason that God ceased speaking was because the leaders, the people that were in charge of passing that word along to the people, were unfaithful in how they were doing it. They had certain words that they liked, certain things that they appreciated. I mean, if you're a priest at the time, if you're one of Eli's sons, there's a lot in God's law, for example, that says some great things for you. Talks about how much respect you get and all of the ways that you'll be provided for by God's people. And priests, everybody knows, love reminding people of all the rules, right? And all the laws, right? And how this, this, this system uh, has that they have this central role in what's going on. They had no problem communicating those things to people. And then there were other things that they didn't feel like they needed to communicate to people quite so clearly. And it was because of this, and it was because of the leaders and the way they had chosen to live. It's because of their, their marriages that were unholy and their behavior that was wrong and their, you know, disrespecting the sacrifices, all these other things that God would ultimately remove his word from these men, from these people, because they could not be trusted with it. Because they were playing with fire, and ultimately people were being harmed. It was bringing destruction. It was bringing chaos. Eli comes in this time, and we read, is serving the Lord in the temple. He's serving, uh, and the word ministering, it basically means he's assisting Samuel. Now, it says that he's assisting him in the temple where, there, where the ark is, He's not actually in the room with the ark. He's not even in the room outside the room with the ark because he's not allowed to go into either of those rooms. He's just the guy who's there helping. You know, it's kind of like we're obsessed with Karate Kid right now. I wonder why, right? Uh, It's like, you know, no, man, you're still waxing and washing and doing all that stuff. I have yet to show you how all of this will come together, right? He's like the sushi training chef who's not allowed to touch the knives yet, you know? He's not in the temple physically even. He's sleeping in an apartment uh, where, uh, where the priests would stay at night, and we read that the, the candle of the Lord hasn't even burned out, which there's a candle that's inside the tabernacle, and, and that candle burns all night. So, uh, so this is probably the day, of, uh, well, 
we don't know exactly when this is, but we know that it's nighttime. And uh, we know that because the candle's still burning. And so it's nighttime and everyone's sleeping and he's where he is and Eli's where he is. And we also read these random little details, kind of random details about, about people like Eli, right? He's growing very old and his eyesight is not so good. Why of all the things to describe his eyesight that's going? Well, because there's symbolism in this one little detail that's pointed out. He has reached a point in his life where he is no longer seeing clearly what God is doing and the word of the Lord. So there's so many references here to God's word and to hearing and to reading and knowing what to do with this thing. But we've got Eli who is faithfully ministering and serving when we read about this whole thing now that begins to happen. He hears somebody calling him from the direction of the temple. He assumes it's Eli. Samuel does. So he gets up and he goes to him again and again. And it's this kind of ridiculous like thing that happens, you know, all these times over and over again. Now, he, uh, of course, does not think God is the one speaking to him because, first of all, God has ceased to speak. And second of all, it tells us here that Eli, or that Samuel, doesn't know the Lord's voice. He doesn't know what to even listen for. He doesn't even know what to hear. And so what we see here also is that God is actually not known by two different kinds of people. He's not known by those who are disobedient and therefore cannot hear his voice. It's there, but they cannot hear it and will not hear it rightly, which is why it goes away. But then there's also those who cannot perceive that it's God unless he does what? Unless he reveals himself to them. And so ultimately, because God has now chosen to reveal himself to Samuel, Samuel hears his voice, doesn't know who it is, and Eli eventually figures out what's going on and says, you need to respond and you need to tell God, here I am, Lord, and I want you to speak to me. And so we read about that. We read that um, at, at the end of this, of this sort of ridiculous scene where the same thing happens three times, and you're like, how many times does this have to happen before this guy's going to figure out what's going on? And we read, then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Oh, wait, we have this whole thing here. So he goes, and he comes, and he goes, and he comes, and he goes, and he goes, basically, three times. Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said this, speak for your servant hears. And apparently these are the, you know, almost the magic words, it seems, right? And you have to wonder if you stop and look at these words, just the thing that he says, right? It's so easy. You're, you're getting through the story. You're already at the point where you're like, okay, we, we know where this is going. Let's just get on with it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. What's God going to say, right? And it's easy to jump past that one thing that Eli tells him to say, which is this. He out loud, audibly, says to God something that probably has not been said in such a long time. He says, speak for your servant hears. You know, as I was thinking about that throughout this week, I was asking the question, for all of the words that I say, how often, all the words I say in the name of God, how often, and I'm, if you know me well, you know I'm not short on words, so that's a lot of words, really. 
How often am I saying these words, these words? Speak, for your servant hears. How often am I in a place where I'm actually, when I say those words, I'm now listening? How often as I am in God's word, am I asking this this of him? God, speak, for your servant hears. How, How often as I... How often am I praying, first of all, and asking that? Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. It's easy to pass right by this without recognizing that this may be the very phrase that has not been uttered by a person with a sincere heart to actually hear what it is that God would have him hear. And because um, this young man who has risen up faithfully in the Lord who God now is choosing to reveal himself to, says to him, God, speak, for I hear. And so God gives him um, this prophecy. He, He speaks to him and he tells him exactly what's coming and what's going to happen. And what it ultimately leads to is... It's bad news, first of all. God says, I'm about to tell you something that will make your ears tingle. This is something that comes, that's said several times in the Old Testament. It's like a, it's like a, a euphemism. It's sort of a phrase that people use. And, and it's, it's like what you're going to hear is going to basically blow your mind. You, 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 you're, you're not going to like it also. And he gives him ultimately bad news. Now, this is news that has been given to Eli already to a certain degree. We looked at that last week as a result of his sons and their disobedience, them not living up to what they ought to as priests. And what we see happen here is God actually beginning the process of coming back to his people and saving them yet again. Saving them this time from themselves. They're not in bondage and slavery in Egypt. They're not being pursued through the deserts. They're not being attacked. They are suffering from their own choices, their own decisions, every man living as he sees fit. As Matt told us when we started out in this series, this is happening at a very dark time for God's people. It's happening at a time when people are left to themselves. And you can only imagine how big of a mess people can get in when completely left to ourselves, right? At some point in school, they make you read Lord of the Flies. And that's supposed to kind of start to give you an idea. Because up till that point, you think, man, it would be awesome to just me and a bunch of my friends not having to deal with anything else. Then right at that point in your life, they're like, read this book. And you're like, I'm not sure I'd do that. You know, you probably would. I think the the reality is this is such a dark time and and a dark place for God's people. And as he speaks to them, he begins the process of finally, again, of saving his people. And yet, he doesn't save them with what we would expect. Because you see, God is rescuing his people. He is saving them. 
but he's not doing it by giving them the right person. He's not, giving, he's not, he's not saving Israel by giving them uh, the right leader. It's easy to approach something like 1 Samuel and go, oh, this is what we're going to learn about. We're going to learn about, you know, when, when the king happens and then we get, we get, you know, maybe not a great one, but then we get a great one, we get David, and then we get, you know, these great guys. Okay, this is how God's going to save his people, but that's not how he does it. God does not come to save his people by giving them Samuel, a person who is so great that he's going to do it. He's going to make it work. He's going to make it happen. He doesn't do it by raising up a leader, even though it might be easy to look at it and think that's what's happening. He doesn't do it by raising up a whole new way of leading, a whole new system of leadership by saying, okay, the judges didn't work so great, obviously, and so now we're going to go with kings. He doesn't do it by saying, I'm going to give you guys a whole new way for for this to work, and it's a system, and you got to bear with me, and you'll see, and it'll take a while to figure it out, but once we do, it's going to be awesome. No, that's not how God saves his people. It is not with a leader. It is not with a whole new way of being governed and a way of being, a, a whole new set of rules and a whole new list of things that they have to do. God is saving his people. He's rescuing his people with his word. That is what he gives to them, and that is what ultimately saves them. What you see here in 1 Samuel, what we see in the beginning, finally, of this saving of the people, once again, is that God saves them with his word. And honestly, that's probably the last thing that anybody's interested in. Because not only does he save them with his word, but it's not exactly a positive word, right? I mean, it's not, you know, a feel-good one. God saves his people by giving them, once again, his word, his voice, but it's a harsh voice. It's a hard thing to hear. It's, it's a word of judgment. It's a word of bad things that will come. You know, above all else, what this chapter, I think, represents for so many who have studied it and read it and thought about it and reflected on it is what it means to appreciate and try to hear the voice of God, right? What it means to be listening for that voice and what it means to maybe have uh, gotten to a point where you can no longer hear it or the people who don't want to hear it to begin with. And yet, for all of, of, of that it is still so easy to see God's word as insufficient. But we need more, right? We need better leaders. We need better systems where God says, I give you my word. And sometimes that word is actually going to be very hard to hear. And so why would you take that? Why would we take God's word, his voice, especially when it tells us things that we don't want to hear because we believe that his word brings life. And we know it brings life because it also reflects reality. We see truth in it, and we see the way that we really are. But it is not always easy to receive. It's not always easy to take. There was an article that I was reading this week And 
it was in, it's in The Guardian, um, a British paper and um, or publication. And this article was uh, about um, people starting to have, people, they're kind of being this growing frustration amongst a lot of people and a lot of companies towards what they called um, unconscious bias training. And unconscious bias training is kind of what we would probably call like uh, sort of uh, like cultural or racial sensitivity training in the workplace. And the whole idea is that this is something that uh, workplaces are now going over with people as a way to sort of address this idea of, of institutional like racism or disparity. The idea being that even if everybody in the workplace doesn't believe this thing or believes that it's a wrong thing, that somehow it's still there or somehow it's still like unconsciously a part of what's going on with people, right? Which is, which is a, 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 like, a, like a difficult thing to talk about. And so as, as more people are getting frustrated like the, about these things that they're having to go through and everything, this guy wrote this article in The Guardian where he talked about why he doesn't think it's the most unreasonable thing in the world. And it's very interesting what he says. Please bear with me because I think you'll find this interesting too. The name of the article is Think Unconscious Bias Training is a Fad. It's been going on for at least 2,000 years. He says this, leftist infiltration, uh, the Mansfield MP, Bryn Bradley, calls it. It's Orwellian, too, apparently as well as an example of metropolitan groupthink. These are some of the things that people are saying. He said, but in fact, there's nothing new about it. Because one institution has been offering its own kind of training and unconscious bias for roughly 2,000 years, the Christian church. The conventional Christian understanding of sin seems to me entirely consistent with ideas about racism that appear to some as modern. Christianity asserts that sin is embedded deep in the human condition. Racism is one of its vilest manifestations. There is every reason to expect it to work in us as sin does generally. He says, the idea that people can be unaware or ignorant of their own failings is about as orthodox as it gets. According to the Gospels, Jesus spent much of his ministry decrying self-righteousness, attacking those who believe themselves to be untouched by sin. He goes on and says, further, we're often driven by forces and desires that we fail to grasp or apprehend. St. Paul was honest about this. I do not understand my own actions, he wrote. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. What this author is saying, this writer is talking about, is he's saying, did Jesus not teach people in the Bible itself, this thing that we've been looking at for thousands of years, that we can believe that something is wrong and speak against it and still be prone to do it, right? And still be drawn and find ourselves even doing that thing. 
And so Jesus spoke against the self-righteous, the people who said, because they uh, said certain things and followed certain practices, that made them now righteous. And Jesus said to them, you guys should probably keep looking inward, and you guys have more work to do uh, because you're not totally finished yet. And then he goes on to Paul, and he he highlights something of a passage that many Christians are familiar with, where Paul, in literally the most confusing passage to ever read, it's why it's like hard to even preach on it. It's just like you can't even read it without like, what is this guy, what is he, because he's basically describing the mess that we feel when we're caught in sin. I have these things that I want to do, but I don't do the things that I want to do. In fact, I do the things that I don't want to do, and that's a simple way of describing what Paul's trying to say. He says, there's this desire within me that I don't know how to to deal with, to check, to, to control. And, and so we also have these desires within us that seem deeply embedded that we're constantly struggling with, and there's this war going on within us all the time. He says, is it not, is it not possible that even the things that we, that we build, that we develop, as a society can even, like, we find ourselves as people in these things also still finding ourselves doing things that we don't really want to do and fighting that very same thing. He goes on and says this, more of us could do with that self-awareness. We can say we hate racism, we can campaign against it, we condemn others as racist, but that doesn't make us immune to it. So what this man is, is, is suggesting as he's saying, you can speak against something, you can believe that it is wrong, and we're certainly very good the moment that we believe something is wrong at immediately starting to say, and you do it, 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 and yet, that doesn't make us immune to it ourselves, does it? You see, God's word Ha, uh, describes something that a lot of people who struggle with the Bible describe as a low anthropology. And that's a fancy way of saying, man, this thing is saying some pretty bad stuff about people. We need to think better about ourselves. We need to think more highly of ourselves. And yet, as we look in the world around us and we look at the problems we're dealing with and we look at the things that are happening, we go, or you could look at the Bible and guess what it says? It says, that's what we do. That's what we do. This is what God's word shows us, is it shows us these things about ourselves that are hard things to see and that are hard things to listen to and to hear and to take to heart. And unless we're willing to say, your servant is here, speak to me. And unless we're willing to see and hear those difficult things, often first, the difficult things it seems, then we fail to see the rest of what it is that God has to say to us about who we are in him. You can say that you hate bad parents and bad parenting and what it does to people in our world, and yet you can still be guilty of it, turns out. You can say that you hate when people are unloving and you hate how little love there is in this world, and you can still be guilty of not loving other people. You can say that we all need to come together more and have more unity together as people, and yet you yourself can still do things that are divisive. I mean, literally the people who invented Facebook have said, basically, like, we invented this thing so that you could all 
stay connected to each other and share photos of your kids and your cats and have ways to like things about each other. And they themselves have acknowledged it has turned very bad. And it turns out because of the way people are and our worst tendencies, not our better ones, it has become a thing that even though all the people on it might want to live in harmony, it actually seems to be causing the opposite, right? Because the, we, we see divisiveness come from even these things that we try to do and make. And it's the same with all the things that people try to do to make life good and to make civilization better. It's we're sinners and we make these things and we have to recognize that God speaks into that and his word does if we're willing to listen to it. And it doesn't just tell us bad news. God's word is not just, you know, condemnation and judgment and sin and, oh no, believe me, you're way worse than you thought you were. It tells us exactly how worthwhile we are and exactly how worthwhile each other, every other person is and exactly how much this God loves us. What I love is the, the thing that this author says at the end of this article. He says, more of us could do, or he says, sorry, he says, when Orthodox Christian concepts of sin, justice, and hope come together, we see change. It is surely no surprise that arguably the two most significant anti-racism movements of the 20th century had as key figures men of the church, Martin Luther King and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He says, there are those who say the church should talk about sin less. I say it should talk about it more. The bleak stuff is part of it because it is part of us. But allied to it, are remarkable, life-giving ideas the world needs more of. Repentance, atonement, forgiveness, redemption, salvation. And most radical of all is the conviction that in spite of all of our failings, each of us has equal, infinite, and inherent worth, and each of us is loved. Amen? God's word doesn't just tell us how bad everything is, God's word tells us exactly how loved we are. And the good news of the gospel is that you are actually loved so much more than you think you are. Believe it or not, you're loved more than you love yourself, if that's possible, right? Because there's nothing like the moment that we really grasp an understanding of our sin and, and what that means for us that we feel the absolute least worthy of love and value. We feel disqualified and we feel like I'm the problem. But God's word, if we would hear it, says to us just how much he loves us, offers us forgiveness, and is a beautiful and powerful thing. But we have to come to God and say, your servant is here, speak, and then we listen. There is nothing more beautiful than the good news of the gospel. And there are those of us who have embraced it and are trusting and following Jesus 
and yet have stopped listening to God. Maybe because of the things that he says are hard for us to hear. Maybe because looking inward at ourselves is too painful. Uh, Oftentimes, it's actually because we don't think that we're actually worth being loved as much as God actually tells us that he loves us. But for whatever reason, so many of us need to remember that God does speak and that he does not save us with people and with, with a better way of doing everything and with a new plan and more rules and a better life. He saves us with his word and the life that that brings because it ultimately leads us to Jesus. And yet there are, there are some, there are some even here today, some watching online who still haven't actually responded to that good news of Jesus. And if, if that's you, then there is nothing else that you should hear besides the gospel itself, and there is nothing that you can do that is better than responding to that gospel by saying, God, yes, I will follow you. And so as we pray and as we prepare to worship, as we uh, prepare to take communion, we ask God to speak to us and we listen to him. Whether what his word says to us is easy to hear and life-giving or is hard to hear and brings conviction. We praise him, we thank him, we repent, we are grateful. And for some, we use this chance as the time that we make the decision to actually follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, if there is anyone here this morning who has not responded to the good news of the gospel by repenting of their sin and recognizing the need they have for you, Lord. I pray that you would move within their heart right now and that you, they would recognize that you are speaking to them right now because your whole word points to Jesus. One of the amazing things about the Bible is that as we read, especially even the stuff in the Old Testament, we read these things and they all point us eventually to Jesus is ultimately the one who will save you. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the atonement. Jesus is the priest and the prophet and the king. He is all of those things. So I pray, Father, that anyone who is here today who has yet to make that decision would pray these words with me right now. Father, I recognize that you are my creator, that I am your child, that you created me, and that to live in perfection with you, and yet I recognize, God, that I have rebelled, Lord. There is sin that is in my heart, that the problem with the world around us is not out there with everyone else, but it is the exact same thing that I suffer from in my own heart, God. And Father, I repent of the sin, the things, the the idols that I've placed in front of you, the things I thought I'd find joy in other than you, God, the life that I've wanted to live without you, Lord. I repent of what I've done when left to myself. Father, I ask your forgiveness. 
I, I, I choose to follow Jesus in this time. And I commit, Lord, that no matter what comes in life, that I will believe in Jesus and my hope will be in him. It will not be in what I do. It will not be even in who I am, Lord. It will be in him. And Father, I trust him for my life, Lord. I trust you for my life and nothing I do of my own. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.